Let's pray. God of all mercy, we gather at your calling this morning to give you praise. You alone are able to break our wicked hearts, turn them to yourself, and help us in our helplessness. And Lord, you do this because you are gracious and merciful and good. This week, as has been the case for over a year, has again caused us to recognize how small and helpless we truly are. Across the entire western half of this country, we are now experiencing drought conditions and heat that are record-breaking. No amount of human ingenuity or foresight can contradict the fact that without the provision of rain from you, Lord, death is at our door waiting to devour us. And so we repent of our arrogance and humbly ask for your benevolent love in the form of life-giving rain. We pray for those in this church family and those in our greater community that are at the mercy of the heat that you would provide for them. As you have enabled us, please help us to help them. And please be with the first responders and the healthcare workers in our church who continue to be called upon to care for the community in times of stress. Lord, we also mourn at the horrific tragedy of the collapse of the Champlain condominium towers in Florida. It's a stark reminder that we are finite and mortal and we are not guaranteed tomorrow. Please minister to the family members who mourn the loss of their loved ones the emergency workers that are attempting rescue, and the civic leaders who are guiding the effort. If possible, we pray that there would still be life that could be rescued and given over to you. May that horrible situation be a place for your saints to comfort and love and answer those looking for answers. These situations and the overall chaos of the world cause us to pause and reorient our minds and hearts to you, the giver and sustainer of all life. And so we gather to remind ourselves of your goodness and of the amazing works of your hands. We especially remember your glorious salvation that your son has purchased by his blood and the power of your spirit. We lay before you our corporate and individual confessions that we spend most of our time distracted from this truth or even denying it by our words and actions, forgetting that we are yours to command. Please cleanse our hearts and minds and graciously give us ears to hear your word that you have given to us through the gift of our brother Nick. Let it cause us to no longer see ourselves or others with fleshly sight, but with your sight instead. Please remind us of our identity in you as members of your household that you have built by the good order of your gospel. And please let our submission to your word and our resulting love for each other and forbearance with one another be a sign of your spirit dwelling amongst us. Please also be with our brothers and sisters close by and across the world as they gather in your name. Please bless Redemption Church in Portland led by Pastor Virgil Brown and their leaders, as well as Hinson Baptist led by Michael Lawrence and their elders. Here in Salem, please bless Salem Heights, its lead pastor, Justin Green, and their elders. And thank you for the work you're doing through our brothers and sisters in Burkina Faso as they continue to take your gospel to many who do not know you. Please bless our brother Marcel and his wife Pauline as they continue that work. Thank you, Lord, that we are able to gather now in your name in comfort and security, a reality that many, if not most, believers in this world do not have. By your grace, we come to you now with softened and humble hearts, ready to receive your word. In Jesus' power and name we pray, amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. It's uh, good to be here with each of you, and I am thankful that none of you have melted yet. I know yesterday when I walked from the car to the apartment or vice versa, it was sweltering, and uh, I think today will be worse, but I'm grateful that each of you are here uh, this morning to worship the Lord and now hear from his word.
marriage has a way of grounding us in reality, right? I remember distinctly when I was dating my wife, Janelle. Life couldn't get better. Peak of the world, right? Getting off of work, driving fast, cutting corners, clipping gas station parking lots just to get through that red light. This was the life of a single man in pursuit of a young lady. I distinctly remember calling her so much that her sister just quit answering the phone. Yes, I was that guy. <laughs> and three years later, it, per it paid off, right? We were married. Uh, as an 18-year-old love-struck kid, though, my reality was myself. I had the arrogance to believe that I was all that. I was exactly what she needed. And I'm fairly certain that we can all, probably all relate with that. And what marriage did bring, was bring me back to reality. Marriage kind of grounded me in truth. And when it did, it hurt. See, I couldn't understand why she didn't feel the same way about me that I felt about me. I mean, didn't she see how great I was? Didn't she recognize what I brought to the table or appreciate about myself? I mean, I was one of the most thoughtful guys on the planet. I had great insight. I mean, she probably couldn't find that anywhere else. Being married reveals and has a way of revealing who we truly are. We might think we're that person's savior. We might think we are what they need. We may believe that we're their better half, but it doesn't take real long to realize that they don't think the same way about us. So long were the, are the ideas, right, of romance, uh, a roman, romantic marriage, right? The honeymoon period is over and bam, here's reality. And our marriage had many of those rocks and bumps. And it was due in big part to my false reality of who I was. Marriage forces us to take a place on a daily basis of being second, of being less, of serving another. And the sooner we realize this, the sooner we admit to who we really are, to our true self, our true identity, the sooner we can recognize the beauty of who our spouse really is and who God has created them to be. Today, we come to 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 17. And we're going to see that salvation brings us to see ourselves rightly, and it gives us a purpose we are not just saved from sin, we are saved for a reason. And finally, we're going to see that, that our salvation should cause us to worship. If you're a note taker, here is the outline for today. This is what we will be going through and covering. Salvation brings us to see ourselves clearly, see God's purpose fully, and worship God deeply. If you have your Bible, I would invite you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1 and look at verse 12 with me. Follow along as I read. I thank him who has given me strength, <clears throat> Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy 
because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me the foremost, Jesus Christ, might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. All right. Paul, right away, launches in and points out that salvation in verses 12 and 13 brings us to see ourselves clearly. Let's look again at verses 12 through 13 so that they're very fresh in our mind. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. So our text is right here in the middle of the first chapter of this pastoral epistle. As Tyler covered last week, the, the previous, in the previous verses, we have seen that the gospel gives good order in which uh, we ought to behave and believe. It gives us good order in life, which then results in love and points us to Christ. Good doctrine gives shape to how the life of the church should be ordered. What we are beginning to see here in 1 Timothy and will become more and more clear and evident to us is that Paul himself has been shaped by good doctrine. Verse 11, the verse just previous to our text, Paul tells us, tells the reader, that he has been entrusted with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. See, Paul's job was given, that he was given, was to spreading the gospel missionary style, okay? Planting churches, no surprise there, right? I mean, Paul was kind of cream of the crop. He is the, the MVP of the team, right? The, the majority of the New Testament is written by him. Of course he was given that job. He seems like a no-brainer. He's a great student. He was, you know, got A pluses, 4.0s. He's very articulate. People followed him. Seems like, kind of from our perspective, duh, why wouldn't God choose him? Paul was entrusted with this task because he was the best of the best. Yet that's not how we see Paul talking about himself. Paul is, is very clear about who he truly, who he really is and was. Look how he describes himself in verse 13. He was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. Paul, the apostle, was very aware of who he was pre-conversion. He was very aware of who he was before Christ. He saw himself, for himself truly. So who, who was he? What, 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 what did he carry around? What is he carrying around in his life before Christ? Well, if you look back to the book of Acts, and we'll turn there in a minute, or we'll look there. After Stephen was done preaching in Acts chapter 7, the Jews in the city of Jerusalem dragged this young man out of the city and stoned him to death. Acts 8.1 tells us, oh, there it is. 
and Saul approved of his execution. So Saul, the Apostle Paul, was very aware of who he was. He was there at the stoning of Stephen. He gave approval to the murder of a person, a person who was preaching the gospel. Acts 8.3, but Saul, or also Paul, was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Acts 9, verse 1, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. This is the Apostle Paul. So when he writes in 1 Timothy, I know who I am, and here's who I am, we too can know who the Apostle Paul used to be. He was a passionate persecutor of the early church. And yet, that isn't where God left him. Paul models for us, he shows us, that salvation opens our eyes to see who we truly are. That's what salvation does for us. It opens our eyes to see who we truly are. Paul is able to see who he was, previous life, and come to terms with it because of what God had done. It's the only reason he was able to see that reality was because of God's work in his life. It was God who had given him strength. It was God who judged him, and it was God who had appointed him. God revealed to Saul just who he was, and he changed him, changed him so dramatically that he gave him a new name, Paul. Through the work of God, he received the mercy of God. Before conversion, Paul was under the impression that what he was doing was right. Like he wasn't thinking that, oh, this is wrong. He was believing and had believed that this is what God wants me to do. He was serving the God of the Old Testament by ridding the world of those who would say that Jesus Christ is actually God. And God woke him up out of his blindness in very dramatic fashion. Paul's take on his life here in 1 Timothy is that he wasn't just a, a decent person who needed cleaning up, right? He didn't just need a little bit of tinkering to become the Apostle Paul. He didn't need that spit shine. He needed a full makeover. Those of you who know me know that I'm into shoes. I enjoy them. Uh, I enjoy buying them, looking at them, and sometimes wearing them, uh, when a pair gets dirty, right, you clean it. If they're brand new, you take care of them and you clean it up a little bit. You put a little bit of elbow grease into them and they're almost as good as new. Maybe the creases never go away, but they're nice. But this wasn't how Paul viewed himself. No, not according to 1 Timothy, not what we see him writing about himself. No, he viewed himself more as the sketchers or L.A. gear that you would find at the bins, right? L.A. gear, who remembers L.A. gear? Right? The, that you would find at the bins that needed a like, complete bottom-to-top makeover. Extreme edition. He wasn't a decent person who needed a little self-improvement. He was the worst of the worst, and God saved him. He had then been entrusted with the gospel because God, not because he was great, not because he was wonderful, but because God gave him mercy. Notice, notice the actions in these verses that we've seen. 
Paul gives all the credit to God. It was God who gave him strength. It was God who judged him. It was God who appointed him, and it's God who gave him mercy. And all Paul did was receive it. That's all he did. And you don't really do much when you receive a gift. You just say, oh, thank you. It drops right into your lap, and that's the picture that we have here of Paul's gift from God. So this is not just the story of salvation for Paul, but it's each of us who have been brought from death to life. God, through means that only he possesses, opens the eyes of our hearts to understand our true nature. That's what salvation does. It causes us to see ourselves rightly. God uses revealing our sin to show us our need for him. Yes, Paul didn't have a great pre-conversion track record. I mean, how many of us have blasphemed, persecuted, or even approved of the murder of one of the followers of God? My guess is few to none in this room. So Paul maybe was a little bit worse, right? And yet, and yet, if we look at ourselves truly, we know that we are not that much different. Our sin is no less significant in the eyes of God. Scripture is clear that the wages of sin is death, and all who have fallen short of the glory of God, right? All are guilty and all suffer judgment. That's the reality. That's the re- we are not much different than Paul. Admitting we are sinners, though, isn't really necess- uh, a go-to for us, right? We don't wake up in, in the morning, naturally, of our own and say, hey, I'm a sinner, here we go or in an argument with our spouse, be the first to admit, hey, I was wrong, I'm, I know I'm in sin too, or I'm in sin. We are quick to point and accuse others, and we need to better understand what our sin actually is. One common misconception about sin is that it's strictly an action. I think we need to better understand what sin is, and we view sin as just an action, Right? If we can just clean up our actions, I could have a better life. I could please God. Religion then and Jesus are just viewed as avenues to become better people. Kind of this self-help, right? If I believe in Christianity and become a Christian and obey Jesus, I'll be great. And we end up teaching our children and modeling for them in our lives that that exact thing, that, oh, if you just obey, just be good, just be good enough. I don't want to discredit any of that, but we can't stop there. Because sin is manifested in our actions. It does come out, right? Out of the heart flows the abundance. But we don't need, we need to recognize that what we need saved from isn't just what we do, it's who we are. The very core of us has been corrupted by sin. It was the curse, right, in Genesis 3 that has affected the entire human race. God doesn't help those who help themselves. He helps those who know they are nothing and cannot help themselves. That is when he saves. 
God saves those who know that they cannot save themselves. He doesn't save good people who need a little bit of polishing, right? He holds up a mirror and says, here's who you truly are. Friend, like you and like Paul, you and I need God's mercy. We need it in our life. We need it to be us and to be in us. Paul received it. He he, he received God's mercy. He knew what it was. So what is it? Well, a quick definition of mercy. Mercy is the compassion and kindness shown to someone whom it is in one's power to punish or harm. It was in God's power to punish Paul for his sin. It was, that's God's prerogative as creator, as judge. And yet, because of that mercy that God gave him, he chose not to punish Paul. And so praise God for that mercy, for without it, we, we too would suffer under his judgment. Paul saw who he was, right, in light of who God is and what God had revealed, and God's mercy saved him. So if you are here today and realizing, man, this, I see it, I see my sin, if God is beginning to pull the blinders of your heart off, if he's holding up that mirror to you to see who you truly are, one who is in need of a Savior, one who is in need of God's mercy, don't leave here thinking that you can accomplish on your own what God alone can do. We cannot do enough to make ourselves right with God. We cannot listen to enough self-help books. We cannot have a more, better, most, the most disciplined schedule. We cannot clean up our speech or our acts enough to be, uh, so that God would be pleased with us. Only God can change our nature, the nature that we were born with. So if you're sitting here today realizing that you need the mercy of God, all the Bible says you must do is believe. Believe that Jesus Christ is enough, that God gave and presented his mercy through his son. Believe that Christ, the son of God, is enough for your sin. I would challenge you then, belief then isn't silent. So if you're sitting there thinking, yeah, I get that, that makes sense. Belief isn't silent. Belief talks about it. Belief in God has to tell somebody. So I would encourage you to do that. Find somebody that you know here. Come talk to me, one of the other elders. Talk to them. Tell them, yeah, God is is working in my heart. I see this. We'd be happy to press into that further with you. If you consider yourself a Christian, we can take something from this as well. Paul is modeling what it looks like for us as Christians to see ourselves rightly for who we really are and not be weighed down by the guilt and shame of it. I think back to um, my life, and I think, man, there are just certain things that that's, you know, shameful. I could, I could still feel really guilty for some of the things that I've done or said. But Paul is very clear about who he was. God has saved us. And the focus isn't on how bad we were and what we have done, but the focus is on how good God is. It's the focus of this text. It's not on the the guilt and the shame that might wear us down, 
straddle us. It's on the goodness of God and his mercy. His mercy, his call, his gifting in your life, Christian, should always be held in the realization that we had nothing to do with it. And that humility, that humility will propel us forward to realize the purpose that he has in our lives through it all. And that's where Paul goes. The second point this morning. Salvation brings us to see God's purpose fully. Let's look again at verses 14 through 16, and I'm going to take a water break. All right, I'm ready. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, and in me the foremost, Jesus Christ, might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So where mercy is the compassion and kindness shown to someone whom it's in your power to punish or, or harm, grace is kind of another aspect of mercy. It's, it's the ability and the act of giving unmerited favor. So not only was Paul experiencing God's mercy, right, God's no longer going to punish me. He experienced God's grace, the gift that brought him up. God not only removes the punishment, but he gives, gives the gift of eternal life. And Paul uses the adjective here uh, in verse 14, if you'll look, in our English Bibles, is overflowed in verse 14. The Greek, the literal meaning of that word is just a superabundance an ever-increasing grace that covers the guilt and the shame of a life without Christ. A superabundance, an overflowing amount of grace. This is, this is the nature of salvation that Paul, Paul is highlighting. It was through this unmerited grace that Paul received the faith and love that are in Christ. For in Christ, Paul could see clearly the plan of God. Where once he, he persecuted it, he wanted to snuff it out, he wanted to shut it down. Now, he can see the plan of God in his life, in the lives of those, and, and in the world. Truly the world. Verse 15 is a trustworthy saying. And it was true then, as Paul says, and it's true now. Christ Jesus, the plan of God, came into the world to save Sinners. That's the purpose of Jesus' mission. That's what he's doing today. That was what Paul was to be about. If God could save Paul, he could save anyone. Your sin is not too great for the grace and mercy of God to overcome. That's what we see here. That's what Paul is showing us. Look at, look at what God's done in my life. The very heart of Christ's mission on earth was to save those who were separated from God. And friend, this is an amazing reality. God saves us from our sin. We are forgiven. We are not held guilty. And Paul, the, the, the chiefest, the foremost, as he refers to himself in these verses, of sinners, 
was not even beyond the reach of God. Through him, every day, through the work of Christ and his blood applied to our life, we, every day, have new mercy and new grace for all of the sin that might hold us down from our past and the sin that we struggle with in the present. Paul would have been very familiar with Lamentations 3, 23 through 20, or 22 through 23. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. For those who are in Christ, the grace and mercy of God overflows through the work of Christ. There is literally a superabundance that flows from Christ to the believer, to those who are in Christ. A superabundance of grace that covers the entirety of our lives. What comforting words and reality and truth is that? Our sin doesn't have to hold us down anymore. This grace for our sin includes the sin that you committed, past tense, and the sin that was committed against you as well. See, sin is, is uh, oftentimes, we are the byproducts of sin. Sin isn't just something we do, but it's something that we've experienced. That's just a reality of the fallen world that we live in, and it's unfortunate but we no longer need to carry the guilt and the burdens of sin in our life. We are free to trust in the forgiveness of a good, merciful, and gracious God. Now, I'm not one to naturally look behind every corner and every bush for Satan, but Christian, the guilt that you do carry from the past, that's not from God. Our guilt that weighs us down, that causes us to be um, maybe just, I can't move. I can't think. I can't feel. I can't move forward in life. I have guilt. That is not from God. We have, God has freed us from the, the guilt and the burden of sin. And this is a tool of the devil to sidetrack us. I'm confident in that. If he can't have our soul, he can burden us down so we aren't effective to draw the gaze of others from the grace of God in our life, right? Look at the forgiveness, the joy that I can ha- we can have in Christ to being burdened down. And if anyone has reason to be discouraged, if anyone has reason to be burdened, it's Paul, right? Paul has that reason. I mean, look at, look at his track record. Murder, right? Persecution, torture, Paul could have easily thrown in the towel. Look how bad I was. Look how terrible things I've done. I mean, there's so many people that have been harmed by me. Like the ripple effects of my sin, the childless, the fatherlessness, the, you know, spouses that have passed away. But this wasn't where he went. This wasn't where his mind landed. Not in Timothy. He recognized that he was a sinner. He recognized that he was the worst sinner. But there was a purpose. There was a purpose. 
Paul gives us the reason for God's mercy and grace in his life. If you look at verse 16, it was so that in Paul, the worst sinner, the worst of the worst, the foremost, he says, God's perfect patience might be on display. God's perfect patience might be on display. That all who would come to Christ could see Paul kind of as exhibit A. Look what God can do. Look at what God can do in a life that doesn't look like it can be saved. Paul appears, I think he, it appears that he knows at some level in his life that he was a public figure. People were, knew him and knew about him. They read his writings. So it almost appears that he knew others would be encouraged by this. And for quite some time, and here we are, 2,000 years later, looking at, at Paul's life and his post-conversion reality. Before conversion, there was no sliver of hope that God could work in his life. I mean, how could, and how, how could God use him and what he is doing? And in, in fact, at the time, he thought he was being used by God, right? But, the, but post-conversion, after coming face-to-face with Christ... The plan of God becomes more and more clear to him. God's patience, his unending long-suffering is being worked out in the life of Paul. It's being perfectly worked out, and God did not give up, but worked at his time and in his time. For Paul was a seemingly hopeless case, a lost cause, yet God saved him and brought him into his family and gave him marching orders. His life is, is, continues to be an example to all of us, and I think an encouragement. <clears throat> the reality is, is that our family, our friends, who appear to be beyond God's saving power and saving work, they aren't. They are not. Yeah, what a comfort. What a, what a good reality that is for thinking about the family members that you care so deeply about who do not walk with the Lord. They are not beyond the reach of God. And Paul's life is a testimony of the patience and the character of God. And when salvation comes, it usually comes. It can come in quite dramatic form. Look at Acts 9. For how, and this is how it came for Paul. Acts 9, verses 3 through 6. It's on the screen if uh, you're interested in following along there. <clears throat> Now he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling on the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. God's dramatic saving of, the, and, and of Saul, who is now Paul, was pointed and purposeful. It was dramatic, right? A blinding light that knocks him off of a horse. God can and does save people who are in difficult positions, who appear unsavable, who we would think, yeah, there's no way. There is just no way. There's no hope. There's no light for them. 
Paul was a blueprint for the salvation of God. And it was, he was, his life was then followed by a renewed purpose. For God has saved us, right? Us included, from sin. But we too, like Paul, have been saved to something. Christian, your life is not just, hey, I'm a Christian, great. It's normal. Everything's the same. No, we've been saved to something. From sin to a life filled with obedience. Paul was saved so that those who followed could testify to the patience of God. Paul was saved for a very specific task of, in the early church. But we're, we too are saved to model and exemplify what it looks like to have a God who saves. So is, is your life, the life that you live outside the church and maybe even the life you live outside your home, Is it a picture of the patience of God? A little bit ago I said belief, I made the statement that belief requires, is required for salvation, but belief also is, is ongoing, right? There's an ongoing reality to that. We don't believe once and we're good. We don't pray a prayer once and, hey, I'm a Christian and do whatever I want. No, belief True belief carries with it an ongoing reality. One of the marks of a Christian is a realization that life has a greater purpose. Salvation brings with it the reality that we have been called to, from death to life, and that it demonstrates, that that salvation demonstrates God's patience in us. So does your life do that? Does your life look like you have been pulled from your sin? Does it demonstrate God's long-suffering, God's patience? Or maybe you're living a life that, you know, is not really different from your friends in the world. Living a life that, you know, if you were put stand side by side, we couldn't tell, outside, you know, from their actions and the way they speak, if they're truly a Christian. Do you love your spouse in a way that exemplifies the salvation that you have in Christ? Or do you speak down to them, talk bad about them behind their back? Are you distant from them, detached from their needs? What about what you look at on screens? Would the images you view and the thoughts you think set you apart as a person who has received grace and mercy from God? Maybe it's a substance that controls your body, a substance that may or may not be legal, but should have no place controlling the life of a person who is to be controlled by the Spirit. And these questions could go on. We, should, we could all be asking these questions of ourselves. We should be asking these questions of ourselves. But the point is this. Our lives should model to others God's patient work. We haven't arrived, right? He's working on us, and we are growing, and others who have known us, people who have known us for years can say, they are not the same person they were five years ago. There must be something to this. So salvation causes us to see ourselves rightly, right? We see God's purpose, and finally, in this text, we see that salvation brings us 
to worship God deeply. So after looking back on his life, after looking at how bad he was, like how many, you know, maybe he's thinking of the faces, and he's thinking of Stephen as he's writing that section. Paul then, now in verse 17, breaks into a doxology, a, a song, a poem of confession and praise to God. Look at verse 17. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul's life that he had been that he had devoted to persecution, to torture, to murder had been drastically changed. God reached down and pulled him up out of his sin and has given his life a purpose and that purpose to exemplify that salvation. And what's Paul's response to this? Worship. What does Paul do when he sees himself rightly and sees God rightly? He worships. Salvation caused Paul to rejoice in God and it was in the God who had saved him. So there's two aspects to this doxology that uh, I think would be beneficial. There's many aspects, more than we could talk about probably on, in a morning. <clears throat> but two that I'd like to highlight that I think would be just very beneficial for us. The first is the focus of this doxology. In pointing his mind and heart towards God, Paul is stepping out of the limelight. If it hadn't been clear before, it should be now. God gets the glory. When a person is brought from death to life, the glory of salvation goes to God. See, our natural tendency is to look at our personal narrative and believe that, man, I, I believed. I had some power to save myself. Yet Paul is pointing the reader right to the saving character, right to the saving nature of God. God saves sinners through Christ. We cannot better our lives to the point of living forever. We cannot stop sinning on our own. When God saves, God does it intentionally, and God gets the praise. God gets the glory, and we worship him. That is worship. So this should be the, the singing, our, the focus of our singing when we're together on a Sunday morning. When we come, to believer, come together as believers on a, on a Sunday morning at church or when we are singing in our community groups, we confess the truth that God saves sinners. God saved us together. So we praise him and glorify him and proclaim his truth, that truth, through song. Our corporate worship flows from a realization of what has taken place right at the core of who we are. And Paul is modeling that for us, the natural progression. We have reason to sing, not because it sounds great. I mean, it should. It does. So it's a byproduct. But we sing even if it doesn't sound good. We sing because God has saved us. The second aspect that I think we should point out in, uh, that we should ponder this morning is that Paul is pointing us to the character of God. 
So God gets the glory. God, he's responding in worship. But he's also pointing out the character of God in this doxology. Paul focuses on God specifically and his character. Look at how he describes God. King, immortal, invisible, eternal. So through history, through church history, I know we're late in the sermon and back into the sermon, but I'm going to deal with some theology now. So don't, I hope I don't lose you. But uh, through church history, theologians have described what Paul is talking about here as immutability. Immutability. What is immutability? Well, God's immutability means that he doesn't change and all that he possesses, everything that makes him up is enough to be self-sufficient and self-sustaining and he is outside of time. Okay? So God is immense and expansive. He doesn't need us. He doesn't draw strength from anyone or anything. He isn't bound by time or the laws of nature. Gravity has no effect on him. He exists outside of it. God is king and, and, and is eternal. And there is no way that we or anyone can, or even himself can improve on God. For he is perfect in his own nature. He is the ideal standard of perfection. Look at me with, uh, look at me, but look at Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10. I'm up front. You have to look at me. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all of my purposes." I don't see any chinks in the armor there. Why can God save sinners? Why can God save people? Because he's not accountable to anyone. Right? He exists. He's not bound by the laws of nature. He's also not bound by the laws of sin and death. Paul is confessing this truth in his doxology. God's nature and power are the reasons, are the reason that God the Son, Jesus Christ, can save people. So we have some deep theology, right? Like, okay, immutability, great. What does that mean for me? What does that mean for us today? Well, I think that our worship services, not only should we sing and, and, and sing loudly, right, and confess truths, but I think they should be and reflect the good order of the gospel, as Tyler pointed out last week. What we do here matters. What we do on Sunday morning matters, and that's why it's a priority to be here for everybody. It should be, because what we do here matters. When we sing, we aren't just singing by ourselves in the shower, obviously, but we are confessing truths corporately with other Christians. And so the words that we sing should reflect the very nature of God. They should point our hearts and orient our minds towards his good and right character. It is God who has saved us. It is God who has worthy of our singing. It should also, this reality about who God is, should also impact the entirety of our lives. It should impact everything. Yes, Sunday mornings are important, but worship, 
right? As we respond to worship to God in worship, worship isn't just limited to Sunday mornings. I think we make that mistake. And when we think about worship, okay, yeah, I'm going to worship God and we're going to sing together. Paul's not worshiping here with a group of, uh, of Christians. He's worshiping as he's writing this letter to Timothy. Worship isn't limited to our corporate time together. Worship is involved in everything that we do. All that we do is worship. No matter if you're sitting by yourself in a van down by the river, right? Or living in your home with your family or in community group or in discipleship group or plotting away faithfully at your desk or whatever job it is that you have. You are involved in worship. And we can worship, right? Taking time to ponder the character and nature of God. Paul's heart is oriented towards the things of God and seeing his work through his life shapes the way Paul views life, all of life. And this prompts Paul to worship. Even as he's writing this letter to a friend, Take a moment here, picture with me what it would look like here at Mission. What would it look like here at Mission if we, as individuals, but also as a corporate body, spent more time contemplating the salvation that we have in God? Not only the salvation that he's given us, but the salvation that we didn't deserve. What would it look like to not shy away from looking at who we truly are? and being okay with that, because God saved us. What would it look like to be able to see God's purpose in saving us and corporately rejoicing over God's work in our life? So my prayer is that as we continue through Timothy, that we are able to see more and more clearly how the gospel orders our life together and that it proclaims then proclaims his salvation to the world all around us. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for what we have seen here in 1 Timothy and we pray that, that we, this week, today, Lord, would be okay with looking at who we were and who we are in you and Lord, may we live lives that worship you in response to that. Amen.